The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's broadcast is pre recorded. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. We face a great crisis. Western civilization was based on the Judeo-Christian ethic. That means it was based on the teaching of the Old and the New Covenant, the values, respect for life, respect for women, walking clean before God, integrity, hard work, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. All of those Christian values and also the Judeo values. Western culture was built on that value system There has been in the history of the world no other such powerful and influential civilization that has ever been built. Every other civilization has had a lack of respect for life and women. It has not functioned in the manner that America has functioned, and because of that, Both Europe and America has enjoyed a lifestyle second to no one in the history of the earth. We are now in the process of destroying our Western culture, our Christian culture. We're ripping down the Ten Commandments. We're saying you can't pray in school anymore. We're saying you can't read the Bible in school. We're saying separation of church and state. Well, there's nothing in the scriptures that teach a separation of church and state. This week, some uneducated person said to me, you can't talk like that on the radio, Pastor. Didn't you know the IRS will come and take away your tax-deductible status? Well, thank you very much. We're not a 501c3. We're a free church in Jesus Christ, and we will proclaim the gospel from the scriptures with no hesitation. We're not going to pull back. Our civilization is at stake. Our whole culture is at stake. We have utterly destroyed the moral fabric of Western civilization. And we are being invaded by a Muslim culture without war. Basically, the Ottoman Empire was stopped, stopped by the Crusades, stopped by the British, 
and Europe in a bloody war. I mean, the First World War was struggling with Turkey, with Muslim nations, and with Germany, who was financially supporting the Ottoman Empire, which was failing and being ripped apart because of factions in their governing. Praise God they were being ripped apart. What I'm trying to say to you is that the culture of America is being utterly decimated by our ungodliness, by our accepting and embracing every unclean thing and political correctness, and nobody can talk about what the reality is. There must be a radical revolution in America with a return to godliness, or this nation will be totally wiped out and wiped off the map. We will disappear in history. We will go to the ash bin of history and totalitarianism and communism. Fascism will rule the day. Corporatism will rule the day. I'm unwilling to allow that to happen. And so I'm lifting my voice up and I'm saying Jesus Christ must come in revival power, in revolutionary power. I'm not talking about bullets or violence. I'm talking about the violence of the Holy Spirit as he comes and confronts sinners with the wickedness of their hearts as we have just given in to every lust of the flesh. And then those who have not given in to every lust of the flesh have given in to fatalism. Fatalism is the acceptance of all things and events as inevitable. Submission to my circumstances, powerless to shape the future, an attitude of resignation. We're not free to choose our own actions. Nothing has meaning anymore. Nothing is worth fighting for. Nothing that I do will make a difference. A rejection of personal commitment. Well, this radio broadcast is just the opposite. I'm not willing to roll over for the wickedness of our day. I'm not willing to roll over for the Supreme Court who says gay marriage is acceptable. There's a court that is higher than the Supreme Court. And they said, no, you didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage. I'm not willing to roll over for the lust for money. I'm not willing to roll over for the culture of entertainment of our day. I'm not willing to roll over for this foolishness. I'm not willing that America should be destroyed when it was called forth by the power of God. It was called forth to serve a righteous purpose in the world. And we have been the leading people in giving to others in great generosity as they have faced difficult times. We have helped more than any other nation in the world, those who were faced with famine. We have been the defender of the persecuted. We have been the defender of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not willing that we should turn in some cheap fashion and suck up the poison and the vile wickedness of our current administration and of our cultural leaders in Hollywood. 
I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to roll over and play nice with all of the pastors today who have sold out to modernity, who've sold out to the wickedness of our age, and now they're simply big businesses. They're simply entertainment centers. I'm not willing to roll over for that. I'm going to speak about sin and righteousness, and I'm going to call you to that place, and I'm going to call you to prayer, to cry out to God for America. (laughs) What would this world be without America? We're the last best hope of the world. Merkel is inviting into Germany all of the young men who want to escape Syria or who want to be in jihad against Western culture. Germany is being destroyed and will go bankrupt soon. Japan is going to go bankrupt. These will be the first two who will roll over. Why? Because they have given themselves utterly to ungodliness. I look at all of this and I have to say, none of this should surprise us. There have been other attacks on the Christian faith and on Western nations. This isn't the first. Any of you who have studied history at all know that history repeats itself. That attacks come in much the same manner time after time. Most of you know the name Winston Churchill. He was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during World War II. He was the undisputed leader of the Allied forces. He's well known by History is a man who stood up to tyranny and refused to capitulate to Hitler and the Axis powers. He was the face of a courageous British people. He was also a a Nobel Prize winner. He was an artist. He was a, a writer. One of his best known of a dozen books that are in print was the historical work titled The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Nearly 20 years in the making. If you'd come to count on, on one hand the men who have at some point in history, saved the world, Churchill is certainly on that short list. A man of great talent and accomplishment. He was the victor of World War II. He was, by any measure, a grand hero. It was President Obama, however, who removed the bust of Winston Churchill from the Oval Office, and I have to say to you, that was a quite fitting move by him because he will never be recorded in history as a hero. He will be recorded in history as an appeaser, as a destroyer. 
Winston Churchill was not always a hero, however. Just prior to World War I, the military, school-trained, highly educated aristocrat served in the British military at posts in India, South America, Cuba, and the Sudan. And when under fire, his letters and eyewitness accounts reveal he continually exhibited courageous bravery because he believed God was saving him for a time when he would be needed. He wrote this to his mother on numerous occasions in his early career. He was a privileged Londoner. Winston Churchill, during World War I, was the first Lord of the Admiralty, a civilian position in the British Navy similar to our Secretary of the Navy. What is less known about Winston Churchill is what a failure he was early in his career as a military man and the complete and total disaster he brought on the Allied forces, the bloodbath known as the Battle of Gallipoli. By World War I, the 40-year-old seemed destined for greatness, helping architect the British and French naval strategy of World War I. In 1950, 1915, he devised a plan to invade through Africa. He lobbied the military and the parliament to employ his grand invasion scheme, which he proudly boasted was of his own personal design. (laughs) Allied leaders, including Winston Churchill and Lord Ketchner, scoured their maps to find a way around the impasse that they had finally come to face on the Western Front. Now, by the spring of 1915, combat on the Western Front was in a complete stalemate. Enemy troops stared at each other from a line of opposing trenches that stretched from the English Channel to the Swiss border. Neither opponent could outflank its enemy, resulting in costly and unproductive direct attacks on well-fortified defenses. So this war that had been planned to be quick, fast movement devolved into deadly stagnation. And so the Allied leaders scoured their maps to find a way around the impasse and the Dardendal Strait, leading from the Mediterranean to Istanbul, caught their eyes. A successful attack in this area could open a sea lane to the Russians through the Black Sea and provide a base for attacking the Central Powers through what Churchill called the soft underbelly of Europe. They thought in doing this they could divert the enemy attention from the Western Front. But the campaign was a complete fiasco, poorly planned, badly executed. It began in February of 1915 with an unsuccessful naval attempt to force a passage up the Dardelles. 
The flotilla retreated after sustaining heavy damage from Turkish guns. They were lining both shores, and then they'd also put mines across the channel. In April, a landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula attempted to secure the shores and silence the Turkish guns. But trouble brewed from the beginning. Amphibious operations were a new and unperfected form of warfare, leading to a breakdown in communications, poor troop deployment, and poor supply lines. The Turks had entrenched themselves as a part of the Ottoman Empire on the high ground, pouring artillery and machine gun fire down upon the hapless Australian, New Zealand, Irish, French, and British troops below. The battleground soon resembled that of the Western Front, both sides peering at each other from fortified trenches. Forced to spill their precious blood in futile frontal attacks on well-defended positions, the stalemate continued through the fall of 1915, until finally British forces withdrew at the end of the year. The casualties were incredibly high. Approximately 252,000, or 52% of the British and French, were killed. The Ottoman Turks, they lost about 300,000 men. This failed campaign gained little and shamed both Churchill and Ketchner. Their reputations were destroyed. After the Gallipoli debacle and 40,000 of his dead countrymen on his conscience, shamed and outcast, it would be hard to imagine this young man in a mere two decades, would be leading the free world against fascism, commanding literally millions of men. After withdrawing from public life in 1915, Churchill did the unthinkable. He volunteered for the British infantry, and within months was commanding a company, then a battalion of troops on the Western Front. He volunteered to fight in the bloody trenches of France. He and his men faced the shelling and the German machine guns on a regular basis. But he earned the respect of his men, and he started now the process of rehabilitating his reputation. Often he would expose himself to danger by making excursions to the very front line into no man's land. His letters to his wife at this time continually reveal a man determined to regain his reputation, even if it cost him his life. But then later, at the outset of World War II, as Germany seemed destined to take over much of the world by 1940, Hitler was now prepared to invade England. With momentum in Hitler's favor, with no appearance yet by U.S., with most of Europe in Nazi hands, this one man stood up to tyranny and delivered a speech known as, We Shall Never Surrender. 
This is the same man who just 25 years earlier was forced to resign in shame, responsible for the deaths of thousands of husbands, fathers, and brothers. This one man stood up to the fascists and led the world to victory. The speech, the speech immortalized to this day, is not only in books, but full audio is widely available on YouTube if you want to go look it up. It's not hard to imagine a chill crawling up Hitler's spine when he heard the defiant Churchill broadcast all across Europe. Even if Hitler did not take Churchill and the will of a free people seriously at this point, he at least knew he was in for a fight and that Great Britain was not going to roll over as other European countries had at this point. All of us have in our history courses heard scorn heaped on Chamberlain. But I want to speak a word in his defense, please. When Chamberlain came to see Hitler to sign the accord of peace, Hitler was then ready and was being told, according to his own words, being told by a spirit power that guided him in everything he did to not sign the agreement, but to immediately invade England. At that point, England could not have withstood Hitler's armies. They needed to build up their forces. They needed to build their aircraft. They needed to prepare I'm going to share with you just in a few minutes some of the other side of the story where a humble man, a humble prayer intercessor by the name of Reese Howells at the Wales Bible College was pleading with God to have this accord signed to delay the inevitable invasion that was going to be attempted against England. And God heard their prayer. And we call Chamberlain an appeaser, and he was. But it was God's will that that appeaser should get Hitler to sign that, to give England a few more short months to prepare for the battle that was to come. I'm sharing with you the front side today of this bitter battle. But I want to tell you there was a backside to this bitter Nazi battle. Now, I want to also say to you that today it looks like America is rolling over for the devil. Men who serve the powers of darkness lead this nation today into compromise into ruinous positions regarding homosexuality, regarding the big banks and the financial institutions, regarding the Federal Reserve, which is not federal in any manner, but controls way too much and should be utterly removed. America is rolling over for the powers of darkness. We have a pope who is to be the representative of the godly Catholic Church. And instead, he comes to America and is an appeaser. 
Instead, he comes and lifts up the the defeat of Christianity in the Western world. Not once did I hear this Pope talk about Jesus. Instead, he was all about appeasement with radical Muslims. I'm not trying to bash the Catholic Church. There are many, many wonderful Christian brothers and sisters I know in the Catholic Church. But its leadership has become utterly corrupt. The Western world, the Christian faith, is rolling over for the devil. And I'm here to tell you and to call you and say, let's not let this happen. Let's fight. Let's not be fatalistic. We are on the side of the Holy Spirit. We are on the side of Jesus Christ. We're not going to say yes to abortions. We're not going to say yes to the murder of our babies. We're not going to say yes to homosexuality. We're not going to say yes to lying and cheating and stealing. We're not going to say yes to corporatism. We're not going to say yes to mind control. We're not going to say yes. There are just some stores I won't shop at anymore. Out of moral conviction, I will no longer shop at certain stores. Toys R Us is the most recent one. I will not shop at Toys R Us again. I always spend a fair amount of money there at Christmas for the children. I won't do it again this year. Why? Because of unfair labor practices. Kicking out American workers and forcing them to train immigrants who are not legal. Or overseas labor destroying Western culture. I won't support that. I won't shop at Targets. I won't shop at at Walmart. There are just certain stores I can't shop at anymore because they're ungodly. They support the destruction of Western culture for the sake of a few dollars. This is utter wickedness. So we see the front side of the battle in America. But I want to tell you there's a back side to the battle in America. And that is godly men and women who are staying in the prayer closet and crying out against the wickedness of our culture and asking Jesus Christ to deal with our government officials. There was a great crying out among the children of Israel against the Pharaoh of that day. Well, today there is a great crying out in the prayer closet of America against the political leadership of this nation that has rolled over for darkness and destruction of Western culture, of the Judeo-Christian ethic. I'm one of those. I invite you to be one of those who will be on the backside, crying aloud to God, waking up, not walking and shaping your life after the wickedness of this culture and the vile, vile, ungodly puke that is pouring out on this nation. 
It's time we say no. I say no. I'm not going to turn around. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to sleep through the destruction of my nation. I'm going to lift my voice up against the wickedness, even as John John the Baptist lifted up his voice against Herod's wickedness. Now is the time to prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is coming again. The British population were terrified of a German invasion. And Hitler, in control of nearly all of Europe, was ready to invade England. And Churchill spoke to Parliament on June 4. He said, When a week ago today I asked the House to fix this afternoon as the occasion for a statement, I feared it would be my hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. The enemy attacked on all sides with great strength and fierceness, and their main power, the power of their far more numerous air force, was thrown into the battle or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches. That's where the British soldiers were, and if Dunkirk had fallen, if they had been able to capture and destroy the British troops there, the war would have been over. But by God's grace, they woke up that morning, and the sea was so calm, a rowboat could cross. And boats of all kinds rapidly crossed over and rescued these soldiers and delivered them from certain death. It was God's hand who delivered them. He goes on, pressing in upon the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west. The enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches by which alone the shipping could approach or depart. They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and the sea, They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometime more than a hundred strong in one formation, to cast their bombs upon the single pier that remained and upon the sand dunes upon which the troops had their eyes for shelter. Unexpectedly, I'm now going astray, unexpectedly, Germany pulled back just long enough for the British troops to to be rescued. He continues... Their their U-boats, one of which was sunk, and their motor launches took the toll of the vast traffic which now began. For four or five days, an intense struggle reigned. All their armored divisions, or what was left of them together with a great mass of infantry and artillery, hurled themselves in vain upon the ever-narrowing, ever-contracting apex within which the British and French armies fought. The Knights of the Round Table, the Crusaders, all fell back into the past. Not only distant, but prosaic, these young men going forth every morn to guard their native land, and all that we stand for, holding in their hands these instruments of colossal and shattering power, of whom it may be said that every morn brought forth a noble chance. And every chance brought forth a noble knight. 
They deserve our gratitude, as do all the brave men who in many ways and on so many occasions are ready and continuing ready to give life and all for their native land. He continues finally coming to this vital passage. He concludes, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjected and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all of its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. <laughs> this powerful speech. Winston Churchill made it clear that even in the face of death and certain defeat, the British people would never surrender, no matter what. I just read about a group of precious young men and young women. The young boy, Isis cut his fingertips off trying to force the young people to convert to Islam. Telling them that if they did not, they would all die. And they all died shouting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they were shot and killed. These young people in Oregon told by the gunman to stand up and then ask the question, do you have God? Are you a Christian? And if they said yes, he shot and killed them. It puts to shame the comfortable American who will not stand up for Jesus Christ, who is ashamed to be found carrying a Bible, who will not take a stand against wickedness, <laughs> who will not say that abortion is murder, who will not publicly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This man, Churchill, even if subjugated, enslaved, and starving, he drew a line in the sand. Did his past failures as a young a young man enable him to admit and acknowledge disaster, yet still have faith for victory. 
Did his faith that God was saving him for a time lead him to believe failure was not an option? This one man refused to give in to fatalism. He refused to turn back. He refused to roll over for the wickedness of Nazism. This one man refused to leave it up to others. What if Churchill had given up life as that washed-up, humiliated, 40-year-old loser that he was? What if he had just given up? What if he believed that he could not make a difference? What if he had followed in his predecessor's steps as an appeaser, as Chamberlain was an appeaser, and had given in to Hitler's demands? The world we know today would not exist if this one man had not taken a stand against evil the outcome would have been dramatically different. Will you take a stand? Some of you have been called by God. You've been prepared to take a stand against wickedness, but you have allowed money to rule your life. I can tell you today, if I had allowed money and business to rule my life, I would not be speaking with you today. I would not be challenging you. There would be no such thing as a national prayer chapel. There would be no witness of the power of God to rescue and deliver you would not be listening to this broadcast today. Many of you have compromised with darkness. You have thought that it was impossible to walk without sin before God. You have compromised with the devil. You have turned to fatalism. You're discouraged and depressed. And you think you're beaten. You don't like your boss. You don't like your job. In fact, you don't like much of anything. And you're just grinding out your time, dying. It's time for Christians to stand up and be counted. We look back in history. Sam Grant, the 18th president of the United States, stood up, picked up arms, and won the Civil War as the commanding General, when but a few short years before this, 10 years earlier, he was utterly defeated and cast down with no hope, stacking firewood on the streets of St. Louis, Missouri, to try to earn enough money just to pay for his family's food, pawning his watch to buy Christmas presents. 10 years later, he was the president of the United States of America. The wickedness that we face today in America is overwhelming. It is utterly discouraging. 
They have the power. They have the strength, just like Nazism had the power and the strength. And there is every indication that there is going to be no revival, that we're beaten, that the Christian church is dying. It has become soft and effeminate. It has given way to wickedness. It has drawn darkness into its heart. It is with a form of godliness, but no power. The only way that's going to change is in the extremity of our situation. We begin to cry out to God and ask him to bring revival and deliver America and deliver America starting with you, starting with me, stirring our hearts. I can't talk about it today, but in a specific way, all I can say is that I've been praying and crying out to God, and he's begun to give me a vision that's terrifying of, for me personally of what he's calling me to do in this fight for righteousness, in this proclamation of the gospel across this nation. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to turn back. Mr. Producer, are you there? Let's play that opening song again. Right in the way and 
have about four minutes left today. I want to tell you, I'm not going back. I'm nobody. I'm the least of all of God's children. But I'm going to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand in opposition to the wickedness of our culture and of our day. I'm not going to compromise with it. I ask you to take that same stand and to get in the prayer closet because The breath of the soul is prayer. The battle must be fought in the prayer closet. And then to do and to be what Jesus calls us to do and be. We just have a couple minutes left today. I want to give you some information. If you'd like to be a part of helping this broadcast remain on the air, I need to hear from you. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel. Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Let me give you that address again. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Now, our services at the National Prayer Chapel are held at the All Saints Anglican Church. We rent from them. They've been very kind. Pastor Dan is a wonderful man, and we're grateful that they have opened the church for us. It's located at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Our worship service begins at 12 noon on Sunday. We begin with a half hour of prayer. And then we go into praise and worship. I invite you to come and worship with us. Take a stand with us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. 
I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. I beseech you to pray for me and for this radio broadcast. It needs to be extended over this nation. Stand with me by prayer. Lord Jesus, we're not going back. We're going to stand by faith and be in the prayer closet and cry out for this nation. We're going to rebuke evil on the left and the right, and we're going to call men and women to serve you, Jesus, the living God of heaven. Come, Holy Spirit of the living God, empower your people to walk clean before you by your precious blood. We pray in your holy name. Amen. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk with you soon. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.